Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. You are listening to Any Given Sunday, a part of the Dead End Podcast Network. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, and all other podcasting services. Please make sure you check out Dead End Hip Hop, Dead End Sports, Dead End Gaming, Is the Mic Still On, Chris Platt's Strictly Hip Hop and Hoops Talk, and a host of other shows on our podcast network. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. This is Any Given Sunday for Sunday, July 28, 2019. I'm your host, Manny Brown. What's up, everyone? My guest this week is the acclaimed Seattle Times columnist, uh, former beat writer for the Seattle Mariners, Larry Stone. Larry has been covering the Seattle sports scene, specifically the Seattle Mariners, since 1996 and has been a sports writer for over 30-plus years. Uh, so he brings a lot of insight and knowledge to uh, to Edgar Martinez. And, and that's what we wanted to have him on uh, on this week's show because uh, the great Edgar Martinez who I loved, one of the great right-handed hitters I've ever seen in my life, watching baseball, um, one of my favorite hitters ever. Um, just love the way Edgar hit his approach at the plate. Um, what better way to, to, to celebrate and commemorate uh, Edgar's induction into the Hall of Fame uh, than to get the guy who uh, co-wrote his autobiography, his autobiography, Edgar, the autobiography, uh, which is out now on, on uh, all bookstores across the land, of course. Um, Larry uh, penned that book with him, and he's going to tell us about it and tell us about Edgar's career and a bunch of other things. Larry, uh, welcome to Any Given Sunday. Thank you for uh, being my guest. Great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I know you just got back from a trip uh, to Cooperstown. Uh, for those of us who have not been blessed enough to be there, uh, just just quickly kind of get into that first. Uh, just your experience going there. Is this your first time or have you been there before? And what is that experience like for those of us who have not been there? Yeah, I'm lucky enough to have been uh, there for four inductions. This was my fourth. I did Paul Molitor when he was the Mariners hitting coach and yeah. the year each row set the hit record. And then uh, when Dave uh, Dave Niehaus uh, won the, the Frick Award, they sent me for that one. And then, of course, for Ken Griffey Jr. and now for Edgar. Uh, it's just a magical weekend. And this was even better because I took my son who – had just turned 20 so it was a nice father-son trip ryan divish from yeah. our paper took his dad took his dad so the four of us traveled together you know, ryan and his dad and me and my son and it's just the it's the center of baseball for for a weekend uh 50 000 people in cooperstown uh you know, you know beautiful sunday induction um got to go to a party that the Mariners threw for Edgar on Saturday night and all the Mariners royalty was there. John, Randy Johnson and nice. Griffey and yeah, Jay Buhner and Lou Pinella. Uh, so, uh, and then the, the, one of the, another one of the highlights is he, he, there's a, there's a, a reception for the hall of famers on Saturday, um, early evening and uh, the media gets to go to that. And so all the hall of famers are there so you could be in the plaque room and you could be looking at the plaque of Cal Ripken Jr. and then turn to your left and there's there's the real Cal <laughs> Ripken Jr. just standing there. So uh, it's just it's, it's fabulous. I'd recommend it for, for anybody, even if you're not media and don't get those some of those extra perks. Just just being there is, is fabulous. Awesome. Awesome. Any fun stories you could share? Anything, any tidbits, anything you learned uh, from the weekend there? Well, uh, the first day w walking down main street, uh, we were, we got there on, uh, Thursday night and, and drove in on Friday and just walking down main street. I saw, uh, I'd been there like 10 seconds and saw Denny McLean, the, the last 30 game winner in baseball was at a booth signing autographs. And before I'd reached the end of the street, I'd seen, uh, David justice, Raleigh fingers, Pete Rose, 
uh, Daryl Strawberry. Uh, that you know, that's just the way it is when you're on Main Street, Cooperstown <laughs> induction weekend. You're liable to see any and every baseball player imaginable, from the stars to the uh, the not so not so stars. You know, Bill Madlock was there. Uh, Pete Lacock, who's who had a very undistinguished career with the Cubs and Royals and whose claim to fame is that he's the son of Peter Marshall, the old host of Hollywood Squares. He had, he had wow. for some reason, he had a booth there. I don't know if anyone would pay to get his uh, autograph, but there he was. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, just just the, that aspect of it is pretty cool. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, before we get into Edgar uh, specifically, I want to talk about you. Um, for, I usually like to, when I bring on guests for the first time on the show, I like them to kind of introduce themselves briefly, just kind of give the audience a, a brief bio of themselves, their career, um, just so that you can become, become better accustomed to who Larry Stone is. Sure. Uh, I I got into sports writing when I was at the University of California, Berkeley, um, just kind of by happenstance, there was an ad in the school paper that said sports writers wanted, and I thought that sounded like fun. So I, so I showed up halfway through my freshman year, and the guy who had covered, been covering baseball had come down with mono, so they had a desperate need for someone to cover baseball. So they sent me out to be the baseball beat writer right off the bat without you know ever having written a word. And uh, you know I enjoyed it. They thought I did well enough to keep me on the staff as a sophomore. And I was a sports editor by my junior year and uh, decided that's what I wanted to do with my life and uh, got hired at the Yakima Herald Republic uh, right after graduating. This was a long time ago because I'm old. Seven, 19, <laughs> I, I, was hired in Yakima, I was hired in Yakima in September 1979. So that means that in basically in a month, I will celebrate my 40th year as a professional sports writer. Awesome. Um, spent six, six years in Yakima. Moved on to the Bellevue Journal American, which doesn't exist anymore, but uh, I was the, they hired me to be the Mariners beat writer. So that got me uh, a taste of covering Major League Baseball. And after a year, I moved on to the back to the Bay Area, where I'd gone to college and uh, three years at the Santa Rosa Press Democrat, covering all the Bay Area sports. And then I kind of got my big break, which was being hired to be the traveling uh, San Francisco Giants beat writer at the San Francisco Examiner. Um, and did that for six years, traveling with the Giants, the Barry Bonds, Will Clark years, and then uh, got hired. There was an opening at the Seattle Times to cover the Seahawks, um, and I was uh, my wife was from Wenatchee and kind of eager to get back to the, the state of Washington, so I took, applied for and got that job and just covered the Seahawks for one season, the 96 season, and then they moved me over to baseball. Uh, in 97. And then I did that for the next 20 or so years until I became the columnist in, uh, I think, 2014. So that's what I've been doing for the last uh, five or six years. Awesome. Awesome. Well, were you originally from the Bay Area? I know you went to college in the Bay Area. Were you originally from there? Or were, you, were you from uh, Washington State? No, neither. I was uh, born and grew up in Southern California, the oh, LA okay. area. I was, a, I was a huge Dodger fan growing up. Um, my dad worked for NASA, so I moved to, of all places, Huntsville, Alabama. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, where the, the space, the, he worked on the, the Apollo mission and worked at the, uh, he, was, he got a job that took him to the uh, Marshall Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. So I went to high school for uh, sophomore and junior year in Huntsville and then moved back to California to, to graduate. So. Uh, Man, kind of was all amazing. over. <laughs> that is, a, that's a, that is, a, <laughs> that is. A, how was it? How was it growing turn. up with a? How was it growing up with a with a with a dad that worked for NASA? But that was a pretty cool story. That was right? cool. Yeah, he wasn't a, he wasn't an astronaut, unfortunately. Right. But, <laughs> <laughs> but he was he was more in the kind of the business end of it. But it was still cool. Like, uh, uh, you know, that was uh, when. Space travel was still fairly new and exciting, and uh, you know, I went to a high school. My high school was uh, Grissom High School, named after uh, Gus Grissom, one of the guys who died in the Apollo accident. So um, uh, it was cool. It was a it was a, a unusual uh, job for, for for your dad to have, and uh, you know, I, I enjoyed the the perks of it. 
Awesome. Awesome. Uh, what was it like? Uh, you mentioned in your, um, in your intro, intro that uh, you covered the, uh, the Giants, those Barry Bonds, Will Clark years. How was it like covering that team? Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, the, the manager, when I got there, was Roger Craig. Hum baby, we, everyone called him, and, and he was a great manager. He was a great manager to break in for a kid who was kind of learning the ropes of uh, being a beat writer because he was, you know, endlessly patient and and had a good sense of humor. And then he was replaced by Dusty Baker, another great guy to cover. Who I got, you know, I, I had a good close relationship with Dusty, and um, and you know, <laughs> and it was also a good team to cover in that. There were so many distinct personalities. Uh, right. If you could cover, if you could cover Barry Bonds and Will Clark, you could, and and Jeffrey Leonard and some of the guys on that team, you could you could pretty much cover anybody because they were, you know, they could be difficult, and stubborn, and and jerks and and all that stuff. And you right. just kind of learned how to how to deal with that sort of stuff, which was invaluable uh, lesson for later on in my career. I probably never covered a team that was this tough, although the, the Seahawks. The Seahawks the Seahawks were, were kind of reminiscent of that with strong personalities like, you know, of recent years with like Marshawn and, and Sherman and, and Bennett and, uh, you know, all those guys kind of, kind of reminiscent of covering those of those Giants teams. Wow. Uh, so it was good. It was good. Uh, good training ground. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Uh, what was, what's the, in your opinion, what's the hardest uh, part about being a beat writer for any sport really? Uh, probably the, the day-to-day grind of the whole thing. Um, you know, the, I think it's gotten a lot harder than when I started because of the internet and the round the clock nature of it. When I, I mean, it this sounds like, uh, it's hard to believe for guys who cover the team now, but there was, uh, there was no internet. So there, if you, if you had a story at one o'clock, there was literally nothing you could do with it. So there was no, there was less of a sense of urgency and you didn't have to monitor Twitter because we didn't know what Twitter was, was going to be in 20 years. Um, right. So it was, it was, it was more uh, relaxing and or less stressful because you just wrote your one story and you went home. Nowadays you're, you're virtually around the clock. Uh, if you're a beat writer from the, the which is why I'm glad I'm not doing it anymore. You know, you wake up, you, you got to check Twitter. You got to check the internet to see what everybody else had. Uh, when something breaks, you've got to immediately get on it, right. write your story, check on everybody else. And you don't really rest easily all day. You know, you, you, you go out to dinner with a beat writer and they're checking their phone constantly <laughs> to see what, to see what's on Twitter. It's, it's, it's really, in a lot of ways, it's not very healthy. Uh, so, um, I think that now is the hardest part about it is to, kind of the around the clock 24 hour urgent urgency that that exists um and i think it's burning out a lot of uh journalists unfortunately wow yeah i can imagine i can imagine and just the in that constant uh grind of having to kind of keep up with the joneses if a one guy breaks a story you, you know you almost have to feel like you know you feel like you almost have to top that and and oh let me get the scoop here on this and you know just it, it, it I, I can imagine it being just very very competitive and unhealthy in, in a lot of ways yeah i mean it's a, it was competitive in the old <laughs> the olden days too in a different way <laughs> uh if you had a scoop um it was more powerful in a lot of ways because you would it would be in the morning paper and the other your competitor would have to live with it all day long yeah. and uh and you know there was an anxiety of you know i would i remember getting up at four in the morning to run out to the to the driveway to see what you know whether i'd gotten beat on a story and what the other paper had so you had that that anxiety too but it wasn't uh you know nowadays if somebody beats you on a story you you can all you can rectify that and and do your own work and get it up on the website right away then you had to wear it 24 hours before you come back with with something else uh but i i think it's leading to this is a generalization but and i'm not the first to make this observation but it's leading to shoddier journalism because you're so cognizant of being the getting it Mm -hmm. out there on the web or on twitter that you sometimes guys and women will put it out there before they've fully vetted it just because they want to be first. And uh, you didn't have that 
pre-internet and uh, pre-Twitter and all that, uh, you could take a little more care in getting the story right and developing the story and getting it fuller and richer than now when you just throw it out there when you first have a you know an inkling or something. Right, and I also think the the um, the audience is also at fault for that too. When you mentioned the shoddy journalism and, and the and the kind of the thirst to be the first to scoop something, you know, I mean, you know, if, if you're almost not the first to scoop something, you're almost getting killed by half of Twitter. You know, well, why didn't you have this? Yeah. Or if you scoop something that you didn't get right, or you know, something changed within 15 minutes in the constant news cycle, you know, people are ripping you and ripping you to shreds about why you didn't get this right and all that. So I, I think the the fan base, you know, we've gotten accustomed and I blame myself too. I'm a fan. So, you know, I think we've, we've kind of put that pressure ourselves on, on these reporters and these beat writers to, you know, be the first to these stories. Yeah, that's definitely true. You do hear, you do hear, I mean, you gotta be, you've got to recognize that what the 10 people who are making a lot of noise on Twitter don't, <laughs> and right. this is really hard to really hard to do, do not reckon, re- represent the majority. Absolutely. You know, there's a tendency, you know, the tendency to, to think that, Oh man, everybody thinks that the manager should be <laughs> fired when there's, you know, it's five people. Uh, and with scoops, I, I, nobody even remembers, you know, it's, it's, it's nice nowadays it's nice to be the first with something, but then everyone just moves on to the next thing. And 48 yeah. hours later, no one even remembers who had that last story first. So, uh, you know, I, I think, I, I think it takes a lot of discipline and in a lot of ways, a lot of guts, but you, uh, I think it's more important and you get more respect in the long term If you're known as a person who gets it right, rather than one who, you know, occasionally gets it first, but right, other absolutely. times, other times gets it first, but gets it a little bit wrong. If you were a sports editor in today's climate of media, um, how would you counteract some of these issues? You know, how would you, what would you tell your young reporters, your young beat writers out there, your young columnists, everybody in general, you know, how, how would you, how would you kind of wrestle with that? And, and what kind of advice yeah. would you give them? I would give them just what, uh, you know, I was told and what I think continues to be the guiding principle is get it get it getting it right is better than getting it first and i won't i won't hold it against you if uh you know you you also want to you want you want to break stories and stuff but to me you know signing uh, a guy's going to sign and it's going to be released and a press release in an hour and one person has it in 10 minutes 10 minutes before everybody else or five minutes you know what in the big picture that's that's not that big a deal so i would try and maybe relieve some of that stress from my writers <laughs> and i would also try to somehow make it more uh of a sane job and uh i'm not sure how possible this is a lot of this you have sort of self-inflicted pride and work ethic where you're you know, you can tell you, you, you know, Bob Condota at our paper who covers the Seahawks and Ryan Divis, you could tell him like take an evening off and be with your, you know, your family or whatever, but they're so driven that they're mm-hmm. still going to be monitoring. They're still going to be monitoring the internet. And I, I mean, I would just try and find a way to not make it so uh, oppressive and all consuming because I think that's the way to keep your writers uh, fresh and not burned out because uh, I think I just see it time and time again from people who just, they they got to get out of the, they got to get out of the, um, the cycle after, you know, a few yeah. years. Yeah. I can imagine. I can imagine. What's the best part of being a beat writer? We've, we've talked about the horror story. What's the <laughs> best part of, of, of doing that job? Well, I like uh, I liked the daily challenge of, you know, in in baseball and also in in football. You know, uh, the, the games aren't that much different. You know, you, you come from behind and win. You blow a lead. You win big. Uh-huh. You lose big. You know, basic four basic outcomes. And yet, you your uh, your challenge is to find an interesting and fun and different way of of expressing that day after day and and doing it on under deadline. And I, 
I really always loved that challenge. And you also get to be on the inside. You know, a lot of people who love baseball or love football or love basketball would, would love to, to be on the inside and get the, you know, the, the off the record stuff and the inside story and get to meet the, the participants on a, on a different level than you do when you are just a, a fan or a, an outsider. So, you know, I think that's, uh, uh, I think there's a lot to that as well. Interesting. And, and from your, from your own personal experience, what, what sport did you find the most challenging to cover? Was it the, was it the NFL team? Was it the, the major league baseball team? What, what was the most challenging team or sport to cover? Uh, well, probably in, in a way it was baseball just because there's 162 of them. And, right. You know, you, you, you had so much access to the guys, uh, which was a blessing and a curse. You know, you, the, the clubhouse is always open before every game and after every game and spring training. And, you know, it's a way to get uh, to know and really develop a relationship with players, but it's also kind of a, to the point where they get sick of you, like you again, right. you know, that's that sort of thing. So uh, that was um, a difficult part of it. And what 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 was the what was the the question? It somehow it slipped my mind. Is it the most no, challenging it was, it part? Was just, of it? Yeah, which is what, just which which sport was the most challenging? You, you no, basically yeah. answered it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 But so but uh, yeah. Now I remember I was, what I was going to say. Um, but I had a comfort level with baseball just because that's what I played in high school, and uh, you know I pl- played some football too. But uh, after several years, I got comfortable with the rhythms of, of baseball, and then I. Um, you know, covering the Seahawks, I had to kind of learn that, but, uh, um, there's a lot of basic principles of beat writing that really aren't different no matter what the sport is. So, uh, I really enjoyed my, the, the season I covered the Seahawks as the beat writer with, you know, John Clayton was covering for Tacoma and Claire Farnsworth, longtime beat writer for the Seattle PI. So, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the, the beat crew that was there that year and, uh, uh, it was, um, um, Dennis Erickson was the coach and he was a fun guy to cover. So I, <laughs> I had a, I had a lot of fun with that, but when they offered me the chance that that was, you know, two years, one year after 95, you know, miracle with the Mariners and there, there was a lot of baseball interest and they decided to expand their coverage. And, um, they asked me if I wanted to be part of that and I, I jumped at it. Otherwise I, I would have been happy, happy to still keep covering the Seahawks. Awesome. Awesome. And, and transitioning over into being a columnist, what's the biggest difference between being a columnist and, and just being a following a beat for a team or a sport? Yeah. Well, um, I try to, uh, my, one of my bosses, when I got the job, he said, the piece of advice was keep reporting just because you're a columnist, uh, the best columnists also do their own reporting. So I, uh-huh. I try to keep, I try to keep that in mind and try to report as much, but it's a different kind of pressure. And, uh, um, you know, you don't have that, you don't have that, ultimate responsibility of the beat you know the buck stops when you're the beat writer the buck stops with you mm-hmm. and uh that's that's uh that's a a lot of pressure and stress <laughs> and yeah. you don't ha- you don't have that when you're the the columnist and I, I like the variety uh instead of just covering the team day in and day out i can you know go to the seahawks one day the huskies the next day the mariners the the storm the Sounders, you know, or, or just something completely off the wall or off beat that doesn't have anything to do with any sport, but it's an right. interesting story. So I, I love that aspect of it. And, uh, you know, and, and sometimes you're, you have to take a hard stand and, you know, that could be, that could have its own challenges, but that's what the job entails. So talk to me about the creative process of, you know, you sit down, you know, let's say today you get an idea for a story or your, or your editor pitches you an idea for a story. Talk to me about the creative process that you take, like, okay, I'm going to cover it from this angle or from that angle, mm-hmm. the, the, the actual reporting aspect of it that you, you embark on. Just talk to me about the entire creative process yeah. that you go through about writing a story and crafting that out. Well, I'm a, 
I like to familiarize myself, maybe overly so. I'm a researcher, and now it's a lot easier to do that with Google and LexisNexis and right. all that. So, <laughs> so if I'm writing a story on, uh, let's say, uh, Bobby Wagner or something, his contract, I will Google and read, before I do anything, 20 stories on Wagner and his contract situation, just so I am familiar you know, ultimate, you know, overly familiar with it. Very, mm-hmm. you know, so I, and then I'll just think about it and, you know, come up with a take and uh, then do whatever interviews I need to be done or phone calls to get background or, you know, go out to the Seahawks and if he's available, talk to him or who you can talk to. And then, then I just, uh, you know, let all that sort of just like uh, slosh around in my brain and sit down and write and, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly fast writer once I get in my head what I want to write. Um, uh, I think that comes from the 40 years of being under deadline, <laughs> uh, <laughs> of, uh, you just can't, you know, if you work for a newspaper, you just, you, you get, you learn, you have to either learn how to write fast and under deadline, or you find another profession because, uh, the, the paper's got to be published and you've got to hit that deadline. So, right. um, that's a, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people in other lines of work are kind of envious. Uh, and I know my wife is when she has to write something for her work. It's like, how, how do you, how do you write it so quickly? And it's like that, cause I have to, <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe some quality is sacrificed by that mindset, but it's, uh, it's something that's just ingrained in me. So, um, I, when I sit to, when I know what I'm going to say and I sit down at the computer, it doesn't usually take too long. Right. What's your favorite column? What's your favorite piece that you've ever written since you've been doing the job? Hmm. Uh, I've done some longer. They're, they're almost like takeouts, but, uh, mm. um, I did one on K, uh, K2, the, <laughs> the, the mountain in, uh, in Pakistan, China. Right. The, the 40th anniversary of the first American team to conquer K2, and they're all they were all almost all Seattleites, and so I really dug into that one, and uh, I, I really liked the way that turned out. Um, some of the recent stuff on Edgar, um, you know, uh, which was great work, by the way. Just had to tell you. <laughs> thank, thank you. I mean, it was a topic that you know, since I spent a year with him working on his book, um, was near and dear to my heart. So it wasn't necessarily a real stretch, but it was a challenge to, after having written the book to, to come up with something different. So we put out a special section, uh, that ran the Sunday that he went in and I wrote the lead story and, you know, I was pleased, pleased with that because, uh, even though I'd written so much, I felt I came up with a pretty good angle and, uh, nice. and it turned, turned out well. So, uh, you know, there's, I'm sure there's other ones. I know there's other ones, but, uh, it's one of those questions that I'll think of about five more. <laughs> when I hang up, but. <laughs> no, no worries. Yeah. No worries. Um, the challenge of being a columnist, do you ever run into the problem where you may write a story that may not be so hot on its particular issue or a particular player, for instance, you know, you brought a Bobby Wagner, for instance, let's use him as an example, mm-hmm. not saying that you have written a bad story about him or anything, but just saying, let's say you had to write a story about him that is unpleasant or comes at it from a different angle. Um, talk to me about that challenge. Do you, do you go to the person first and say, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm writing this, or I'm thinking of writing this, you know, just kind of give you a heads up or do you write it, then go to the person? How, how, how does Larry Stone attack that when you have a challenging yeah. issue or challenging? Writing? Well, first of all, I try not to be ever be personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see some columnists who just take shots. I'm just not that kind of, uh, that's not my personality. So, uh, you know, uh, I write things that, you know, if I attack somebody, it would be their performance or something. And, uh-huh. and, you know, I probably wouldn't, uh, I, I just wouldn't be mean spirited. Um, you know, but that doesn't mean that people don't get upset with what you write. You know, the, the there's some around the Mar- Mariners, uh, the ownership who, and, who didn't, who haven't liked my, my 
stance on, on the team and, and the way it's run and that sort of thing. Um, like I, I've gotten phone calls at home from <laughs> Bud Selig when he was the commissioner of baseball who really didn't like some things I wrote about him. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, I wouldn't necessarily tell the person that I'm going to write it, but I would make sure that I, you know, I do make sure that I show up the next day. That is, I think any columnist or really any writer would tell you that that's the key to the whole thing is just show up. And if anybody, just so that if anyone has anything they want to say, they, they can't accuse you of hiding or, you know, hit and run or anything like that. Just be there. You know, even if it's a day off, I've gone to the ballpark on a day off just so I could stand there if somebody wanted to say something to me and then gone home. Uh, and I know Matt Calkins, my, uh, comrade, <laughs> compatriot at the, as a columnist at the Seattle Times feels the same way about that. And that's something that I definitely learned from, from other columnists along the way. And, uh, I've never had, uh, too bad a reaction, you know, to, Steve Kelly, who I replaced at the Seattle Times, he's had, he has some stories of people who have threatened to kill him and that sort of thing. I've never, <laughs> wow. I, I've never had that, which may, maybe that means I'm not being tough enough. I don't know. Or maybe I, maybe I have a, uh, a, a better bedside manner than Steve or, or what. I don't know why, but, uh, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that, that, that's a, you do have to, sometimes uh write unpleasant things about that about people and that that sometimes isn't so fun yeah definitely i can i can imagine um transitioning over a little bit into but before we get into edgar um i i read a piece that you did on uh jim bowden uh uh recently deceased uh, author of ball four um did a did a little interesting take on it from his, you know, his connections with the Seattle pilots and basically the birth of Seattle baseball. Um, talk to me about Jim Bowden and specifically for, for folks of my age, you know, that, that are growing up in a world where ball four just seems like it's not a big deal, you know, like it's like, Oh, what's, what's the big deal about a writer or a former player writing some, you know, stuff in a book, you know, we, we see that almost every day now, you know, you know, to explain the impact of that book and Jim Bowden um, that that had at the time, because I think a lot of people, even when his death happened, you know, recently, and, and I was doing some research on him, you know, I think a lot of people now just kind of like myself, just don't look, don't, don't blink twice about it. Don't blink twice about the impact that that book had and, and, and how coverage of, of athletes has changed since then, you know, just kind of go into that a little bit and, and how that has changed from when that book was released and the impact of that book. Sure. Uh, well, I was 12 when that book came out. So I was sort of like, a tar- <laughs> you know, uh, I was there on, uh, in the, the mid- middle of it because up until that point, if you read a sports book, it was a gee whiz. Uh, these guys are heroes. Uh, this Here's all the great things about baseball or football or, or whatever. And what this did was it showed you what it was really like. And there, it just hadn't been done there. There had been some people that sort of uh, uh, dipped their toes in that water. You know, a guy named Jim Brosnan, with a, re- a reliever with the Reds, had written a book called The Long Season, but it wasn't anywhere near as intimate as uh, Ball Four was. Uh, you know, Jerry Kramer of the Packers had written a diary type book called Instant Replay, but that was pretty fawning over. Uh, Vince Lombardi and, and that sort of thing. But this, this, this book had Mickey Mantle leading, uh, uh, <laughs> expeditions, you know, to, to, in the dugout drilling holes in the dugout so they can look up women's skirts. That's, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing <laughs> where, uh, you know, Mickey Mantle, who was the, uh, the, the sainted all American hero just in a different light. So it just, it, I think it was so influential in that, uh, the sort of journalism that we had today, I think in a lot of ways sort of began with Jim Bouton because athletes, writers sort of realized that you didn't have to only write these fawning stories. You could tell the truth and what really happened. And there were, you know, there were a ton of tell all type books that that led to that followed from that. And, uh, uh, to, to now where, you know, you, 
there's certainly no soft peddling anything that that happens uh, with so many websites and uh, deadspin and and all that right. sort of thing. You know, nothing is off base anymore, pretty much. And you know, a lot of that sort of the beginning of that process uh, and that realm of journalism, I think, was ball four. And it was just, it was also, I mean, it was it was revealing, but it was also funny. You know, if you. It, I haven't read it in a while. It may it it may be it probably doesn't seem nearly as racy as it did when I was twelve years old. <laughs> but uh I mean, maybe and no one even remembers most of the players in there. Uh, you know, who remembers uh, Ray Euler or uh uh Dooley Womack or any of those guys that most most of them wouldn't have been remembered for a second after they retired, if it wasn't for ball four and most of them are forgotten to anybody who hasn't read the book or who wasn't related to them now, but um, it's just a hilarious account of what it's like to, to be on a baseball team. And uh, you just didn't get that anywhere else. Did you ever, uh, did you ever interview or cover Jim Bowden? Yeah. You know, uh, when I came to Seattle, um, I did lots of stories on the pilots. Every time there was an anniversary, you know, the Seattle pilots were the, were here in Seattle for one year. That was the, the team that Bouton was on that he chronicled in ball four, the six, 1969 Seattle pilots. And so, uh, you know, every time it was 25 years or 35 years within 45 years, and they just had 50 years, uh, I would call up Bouton and he'd love to talk. He, his number was listed or was easily available and you'd call him up and he'd talk as long as you wanted to about ball four, about the pilot. So I probably interviewed him 10 times. He came wow. to Seattle, came to Seattle when the, the, Sabre Society of American Baseball Research, uh, their national convention was in Seattle about eight or nine years ago and he was the keynote speaker. So, you know, I interviewed, I, I'd listened to a speech and talked to him then. Uh, so, you know, I certainly didn't have a friendship or anything with him. I think he came to know my name and stuff, but, uh, um, you know, that, I think that gave me a little more insight when he died last month and I had to write kind of an appreciation of him. So, I think it was right in my wheelhouse, I think, because because ball four was so influential to me because I had a little bit of a of a interaction with with Bouton, and I, I think I understood his impact. Yeah, definitely, definitely a huge impact, an underrated impact, honestly. Um, I, th- I think a lot of people don't really appreciate the impact of that book and and what it did and how it really changed uh, the coverage of athletes going forward. Like you said, it, you know, some would say for the better or worse. I mean, depending on your on your uh on your perception of that but um yeah definitely a, a huge impact on on, on well I, you know it's funny you should say for the worse i mean he was vilified by his fellow athletes yeah who who you know in the in the immediate aftermath when he came back in 1970 and uh um the book he was at the end of his career anyway so it didn't really matter to him it it, it, it made him famous and made him a lot of money in the long run. And, but um, uh, the commissioner called him in. I mean, it was a scandal to this book. They, the fellow players thought he had violated the sanctity of the clubhouse. You know, the rule, what, what you see here, what you say here, it must stay here. You know, that, that's something that's in every clubhouse that's either written explicitly or it's known implicitly. And he violated that in a lot of people's minds. And, uh, and so a lot of people were furious at him and, uh, but that, that, you know, it added to the publicity for the book too. Um, and, you know, now that when he died, it's, there's been a revival of ball for it's been, you know, people are giving it another look, which I think is a great thing after, uh, you know, it, 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 it was published 50 years ago, 19, come next year. And it was published in 1970. So we're, coming on the 50th anniversary and here yeah. I'm getting a, getting it's the, you know, number one selling sports book in a week after he died. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you also got banned from the Yankees. Couldn't come back to Yankee stadium for a long time and, you know, didn't come back yeah. to 98 for, for an old timers game. I think that's what, and I do just doing the research. His son wrote a letter to, 
wrote a letter to the Yankees, basically, you know, saying it would mean a lot to the, you know, to him to come back. I mean, it's just just a, a glimpse into everything that the guy went through, you know, because I think people kind of take the 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 celebrity aspect of it. Oh, he wrote this influential book, and you know, he really made a lot of money off of it. But you know, he kind of suffered a long time with the impacts yeah. of that book and and everything that he went through. Yeah, and there's a there's a cool kind of a cool story behind his return to the old timers game. Um, when Mickey Mantle's son died, Bowden um, oh. wrote him a letter saying, you know, wish he, expressing his condolences that his son had died and saying that he hopes he still doesn't have hard feelings about ball four, that he didn't mean anything personal towards Mickey. And Mickey uh, called, left a voicemail on Bowden saying he, ne- he never had any hard feelings. Or, or he's over whatever feelings he had they are long gone that he, and he said, I'm not the reason that you're not coming back to uh, old timers day. I never said that. And that meant, yeah, I talked to Bouton about this and that meant everything to him. And then Bouton's own daughter died in a car crash. And yeah. that's when his, that's when his son uh, wrote the letter to, it, it was an open letter in the New York times to George Steinbrenner, the owner of the Yankees saying he you need to invite him back. It would mean so much to him at this point in his life. And the, the Yankees agreed and brought him back. And, uh, uh, that was, you know, that was a huge, uh, thing for Bouton kind of closure for ball four and the bad feelings and everything. And he was back in the Yankees good graces after that. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome story. Uh, amazing life. And, and I think people forget too, he was, a, he was actually a really good pitcher for a while with the Yankees. You know, he had two years, uh, yeah, I think he won 39 games in in back, you know, in, in total in two years. So you know, he had a, he had a pretty decent career until arm troubles uh, starting to affect him. So I think that's another thing I think people forget about. He, I didn't even know, you know, I I just thought, you know, I knew he was a baseball player and I knew he was a pitcher for the Yankees, but I never knew the the level of success that he had attained, you know, in a short period. Yeah, I mean, he was a left-handed fireballer who, yeah, he won 20 games I think his second year, and he pitched in the world the, the Yankees. We're in the World Series in '63 and '64, his first two years, and he was in their rotation with Whitey Ford. You know, uh-huh. all those you know those those guys pitching pitching in the World Series, and then as you mentioned, he had arm problems, and then then he became a knuckleballer. And by the time he was playing for the Pilots, he was just hanging on with a knuckleball right. and was uh, you know just not very good at that point. And uh, he ended up getting traded in the middle of that season to the Houston Astros, which is a funny. Uh, part of ball four too. How his time with the Astros. If you read the book, I, I think you'd certainly enjoy that too. With Leo, <laughs> the legendary Leo DeRocher was by that point the, the manager of the uh, of the Astros, and uh, it was it was pretty pretty humorous with some of the things that happened there. Yeah, yeah. Rest in peace, Jim Bowden. Uh, amazing life, amazing career. Um, Let's move on to Edgar. And before we get to the book, um, just talk to me about covering Edgar for, you know, the majority of his of his uh, career with the Mariners. Just talk to me about because I, I think Edgar is a guy that I think on so many ways he's so underrated and so forgotten about, you know, not in a negative way, like, you know, forgotten about like people don't remember him. It's just that people don't think of, don't think about Edgar because he didn't have the personality and the youthful exuberance of Ken Griffey or, or the personality of Jay Buhner or the, or, you know, or, or Alex Rodriguez, but Edgar was just a guy every day that was in the lineup produced. Um, Talk to me about Edgar, his career, your interactions with him before the book, before working with him on the book and and everything. Just kind of talk to me about how Edgar Martinez was, the baseball player, just covering him each and every day. Yeah. Well, you make a great point. Uh, He was never the focal point for, uh, you know, uh, Griffey joined the team in 89 and it was Griffey's team from that point on. And, And it was Randy Johnson's team. And then when and then it was Alex Rodriguez's team. And then when Alex left, it became each team in 2001. <laughs> so there was always a brighter, flashier, more famous superstar out front. And he liked it that way. <laughs> you know, he's just not a me, 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 me guy. He's uh, quiet. He's a little bit shy, in fact, uh, just wants to do his job. But if you ask anybody who played for the Mariners. And believe me, I asked everybody. <laughs> I talked to just about everybody. And they will all tell you 
that he was the heart and soul of the team whenever he was on it. Well, no, it doesn't matter who was out front. He was the guy that everyone looked up to. They knew he was the master uh, craftsman at the plate. He was the guy they went to if they had uh, questions about a pitcher, his stuff, how they were pitching him, you know, why he was, why they were slumping or Edgar would go to them. He was happy to help. And, uh, uh, he was also much more fiery than you would think. Uh, he had a little bit of a temper. He had a, like a burning will to win that they knew about on that team, even if it wasn't always apparent to the fans because, you know, he, he rarely showed it. And, but when he did, uh, you know, kind of like, look out, <laughs> mm-hmm. still waters run, run deep, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, I, I, I covered, I came to Seattle in 96, which is the year after the you know, double, I wasn't here for that. And then I moved over to the Mariners in 97. So I covered him his last eight or nine years of his career and, uh, you know, really enjoyed covering him, developed a, pretty good relationship with him in 2001 um, when A-Rod signed with Texas, his first game with Texas was uh, they were going to play the first game of the season. The Rangers opened in uh, Puerto Rico against the Blue Jays. And so they decided to send me to that game because there was, you know, obviously there was still a lot Mm -hmm. in A-Rod. Newspapers had bigger, newspapers had bigger budgets in those days. So they could do something (laughs) like that. So I decided like, well, I'm going to San Juan, Puerto Rico. Why don't I go and check out Edgar's hometown? So, and do a big story on that. So I uh, did a long interview with Edgar about his, his upbringing and his hometown and went to Dorado on that trip, uh, rented a car and drove, it wasn't not that far from San Juan, you know, 40 minutes or so. And, and, you know, you asked me my favorite column, but if you ask me my favorite story, it's probably that one. Uh, mm, okay. Uh, the, the story, uh, you know, along, which we just actually ran um, in the paper last week as part of this package of Edgar stories. That was the first one was this almost 20 year old story I wrote on, on him growing up in El Dorado or in Dorado rather. Um, and I think that's probably the germ of, of the book was seeing, you know, hearing his remarkable story and meeting a lot of his relatives in Dorado and, uh, you know, just kind of tucked that away. And, um, and then after he retired, I still continued to have a relationship with him. You know, we do stories on every year when the hall of fame vote came up for 10 years, you know, I talked to him then, um, he asked me to help him out with a project that he was working on, uh, some, some batting tips and stuff. And he wanted, you know, he wanted some help writing it. So I helped him with that. So, um, you know, I, I think I had built up a decent relationship with him to the point where he was comfortable doing the book with me. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I'm sure you got to talk to him a lot during that 10 year period when he didn't get into the hall. Um, did you Mm -hmm. ever notice, and I'm sure it's in the book. I haven't had a chance to read it. Unfortunately, you just shut, but, um, uh, I'm sure you talk about it in the book to a certain extent, but did did it ever bother Edgar? I I know he probably had a, had a great poker face about it, but did it, did you, did you ever, even in your, just your private discussions, did you ever just notice that it, it ate away at him or that it bothered him a little bit that he had to wait so long, um, to get into the hall? Uh, you know, I don't, I honestly don't think so. I mean, he's very stoic about it. You know, it, it goes right in line with the, one of the narratives of his career is that he had to wait so long to get into the major league right. uh, and get a, and get a starting job. I mean, he, in 1987, 88, 89, he tore up the AAA PCL and, uh, you know, won batting titles and yet he couldn't stick behind, he was behind Jim Presley and Darnell Cole. So it took him till 1990, you know, when long after he should have been a major league regular to finally get the job. And, uh, you know, he used to tell people it didn't bother him that, you know, the team would, was doing what they had to do and he would get the job when he wanted, but he finally, you know, for the book, he admitted that, you know, it did bother him. And, you know, all those years later, 20 years later, he could admit that he was frustrated and impatient and all that. But I did not get that same sense 
with the Hall of Fame thing. He knew he knew from the start that it was going to be a long haul because he knew what he knew that he was a DH for most of his career and that there was going to be some backlash against that. And he didn't have the 3,000 hits. He only had 2,247 hits. He didn't have the 500 homers. He only had 309 homers. You know, he could have overcome the the DH bias if he had had those benchmark numbers, but he didn't have those. So uh, I do know that halfway through, five years through, he was at 25%, I believe it was, uh, 25.2% with five years to go, and you need 75%. At that point, I think he pretty much gave up that he was going to get into the Hall of Fame. And, you know, I did too, to be honest. I, I didn't see how he could recover from from that hole, from that deficit to get to 75%. And yet, uh, it was like a miracle. He just, uh, he moved up to 27% the next year and then 43% and 58%. And, and uh, it's just the momentum began to swing the other way. And I think the year he got 58%, 2017, that's, when he began and everyone else began to realize that, hey, this really could actually happen. And that was with two years to go on the ballot. So uh, I think he had to wrap his mind around many different uh, uh, ebbs and flows of this thing, where early on, he I mean, right out of the gate, he got 36%, which wasn't a bad for the first year. So I think he thought, oh, I might have a shot at this. And right. then it went, the, it went the wrong direction. And like I said, he was down to 25%. And that's when he, I think he thought, you know, well, it ain't going to happen. And if it's going to happen, it's going to be the Veterans Committee, not the baseball writers. And then there was another turnaround. So um, I did not ever detect any bitterness or even frustration, uh, maybe, maybe with his wife and family, but not with me. <laughs> right. Um, and and what's your, what is, real quick before we get to the book, um, what's your stance on the whole DH thing? Because I've never quite understood that narrative that you know, that, you know, the Hall of Fame voters look down on on DHs and guys that didn't play a position in the field. I just never understood that bias. Where do you stand on that? Because um, it just it well, seems very antiquated and 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 just a it's a terrible view. Because to me, you get judged on your numbers and. And, and while he didn't have those benchmark numbers, he, I mean, he had an ama- a hell of a career. And anybody who watched him play knew the guy was just an amazing Hall of Fame hitter. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I voted for him every time he was on the ballot, 10 straight times. So that should answer your question. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I think it's a position in baseball, and it's like a closer. Uh, you know, how, how could you – Mariano Rivera was pitching one inning at a time more. So, so if you're if you're going to uh, downgrade a DH because he didn't play the field, then you have to downgrade a closer because he only pitched one inning at a time, and uh, you know he was unanimous in his first time on the ballot, as well he should have been. Um, I I just I mean I, I I understand the the argument that if he had had to play in the field, that maybe you know, his numbers would have suffered, but I mean, that's the way baseball is. There's a DH and his numbers were clearly, uh, if you looked, if you look deeply enough and open-mindedly enough, you know, the 300, 400, 500, 300 batting average, 400 on base, 500 slugging, you know, that's so rare in baseball and virtually everyone who's done it. Yeah. Well, everyone who's done it is either a hall of famer or not a hall of famer because of, uh, they're not eligible or because of uh, steroid uh, accusations. So um, he, he, his, his numbers in so many ways are better than David Ortiz. David Ortiz has the 500 homers, right. but you know, war and, and all the esoteric stats really strongly favor A-Rod over, over Ortiz. And um, so I think, I think there were just a lot of people who, wrote a lot of articles and made it uh, safe, <laughs> safe to vote for Edgar because they just, you know, Jay Jaffe comes to mind with Sports Illustrated, who was a strong advocate. And, you know, there was five or six or seven or 10 more who uh, Jason Stark. And, you know, when people like that started advocating for him, I think it sort of freed up other people. And other Hall of Famers yeah. and other Hall of Famers. 
I mean, I remember yeah. Pedro saying that was the toughest hitter he ever faced. Uh, you know, Pedro Martinez yep. saying this. You know, Randy and Johnson Griffey came Jr. to his defense. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And, you know, Ken, yeah, that's right. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr. in his speech, uh, you know, he he put in a, uh, a bid for him as well. So, yeah, I think that helped. I think that helped for sure. And, uh, you know, the Mariners did a good job of uh, making his case. They They sent out a packet. Not every year, but the last few years that that put in one spot all his numbers and where he stood and compared and and testimonies that you mentioned from you know Pedro and Mariano and Randy and George Brett and you know Cal Ripken uh, and I, you know, it made for a powerful and persuasive case that I think uh, helped him as well. Definitely, definitely, and finally with the book. Um, Talk to me about the process of, of of sitting down and actually writing the book. Uh, who came? Who you know? Obviously, it was Ed, Edgar wanted to tell his story, but just tell the process of how that came to be, how you got involved. I know I know Ken Griffey is a contributor in the book as well. Um, you know, just talk to me about the process of sitting down writing the book with him. And, you know, and did, was there anything that you learned new? I mean, you covered the guy for you know a few <laughs> years, like you stated. So there, was there? I'm sure you learned even more things about him that you didn't even you didn't even know just from your career as a as a writer covering the Mariners. Yeah. Um, I approached him in spring training of 2018. He was still the hitting coach at the time. And uh, I kind of pulled him aside in one of the backfields in Peoria where the Mariners trained and said, you know, you, you're going into your final year. It looks like you're going to get in this year, your final year on the Hall of Fame ballot. Um, I think it'd be a great time to tell your story and do a, a a book and I'd love to help you with it. And he kind of thought it over, you know, standing there with a bat in his hand and he thought it over and said, okay. And that was it. (laughs) So, uh, we, you know, we ironed out the details, uh, in the logistics, but, um, it was a little difficult because he was traveling with the team as the hitting coach and I wasn't traveling with the team. So we had to do our interviews, um, when the team was home, but whenever the team was home throughout that season, I went over to his house a couple of times, a homestand and just sat on a big, big, easy chair in his living room and just talked to him about his life. Uh, you know, hours and hours tapes that I would transcribe. Uh, and you know, I, I pretty much went chronologically and, you know, I would double back with stuff, but, um, and then I, I talked to, as I mentioned, I, I kind of fleshed it out with interviews with uh, teammates, family members, managers. I talked to every one of his minor league managers. Uh, Lou, of course, uh, you know, Buner and Griffey and Wilson and uh, other people who were influential in his life to kind of get a, and I kind of sprinkled those vignettes in the book. Um, it's a little bit of a different technique. It's it's written in his voice, but but there's uh, it's it's sprinkled with vignettes from you know Rick Griffin, the Mariners trainer, or or, or Carmelo Martinez, his cousin. That so um, I think it just gives us sort of a 360 degree view of his life, and uh, uh, you know a couple things I learned. Um, the one thing that really stood out was his passion over the mental side of baseball. There's a whole chapter on that. He on Edgar honestly believes that that was the difference maker for him was his mind. And he tells the anecdote about how he, in 1990, he finally won the third base job after years of, of getting passed over. And he barely had his first month, he made four errors in a game, tying a, tying a major league record for a third baseman, the most errors. And he, and it really impacted his confidence. And for the first time, he didn't want the ball hit to him and kind of spilled over to his, uh, batting. And, uh, you know, he lost his, his confidence, which he had always had. So he found, he, he went to the self-help section of a bookstore and found a book on, on training your mind. He can't even remember the name of it, but this book, <laughs> wow. he, I mean, he, be- he believes this book changed his career because uh, from that point on, he was totally into visualization and affirmation and, and uh, the self, the subconscious and how to train, you know, the subconscious and uh, eliminate negative thoughts. And he actually trained his mind, you know, he, he did like these mind exercises for like a half an hour to an hour every day 
And he believes that's the the only thing the the difference between a batting champion and a every you know a run of the mill player is the one is what you do with your mind. And the other thing was his his eye condition. Uh, everybody knew he had trouble with his eyes, but I think I I went into more depth as it has ever been or ever been uh, found out about this, this, this strabismus strabismus. It's kind of a cr- cross-eyed situation where he couldn't align his eyes. And, and you can imagine with a 98 mile an hour fastball coming yeah. in, if you couldn't align. So, and I talked extensively with the, uh, the optometrist who worked with him, Douglas Nicotani and the, the exercises he had to do every day of his career to overcome this. And, uh, I think that's a, that's kind of eye opening tool, <laughs> no pun intended to a lot of people. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, I have a copy waiting for me. Uh, one of my friends who's a huge Mariners fan uh, has the book and, and really was the one that uh, prompted me to, to try to get you on the show and interview you because he knew I was a big Edgar fan. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I can't wait to read it. It sounds like it's an awesome book and, and you learn so much about Edgar and, and, uh, and uh, you know, his career and it's, it should, it sounds like it's an awesome read. I, I can't wait to get to it. I really can't. Well, I hope you, uh, hope you enjoy it. Yesterday I went to, uh, Costco and you know their the weekly Costco run and I was very pleasantly surprised and to see that the that Edgar was in the book bin there at the Costco which I didn't even realize so uh, <laughs> that, that's uh that, that's I can imagine that's very humbling yes yeah yeah that's very humbling and it's uh it's good for <laughs> for an author to see your book at Costco with all the thousands of people who walk through there right uh, is is pretty pretty good so uh, you awesome. can get it at Costco and Barnes and Noble and Amazon and uh, Elliott Bay and all the bookstores and book outlets. And one last thing before I let you go, Larry, and it's been an awesome conversation. Um, so it's somebody maybe listening to this that wants to start a career in, in broadcast journalism or, or become a sports writer. What, what's the, and you've given a lot of nuggets about your career and the things that you've learned, but what's, if somebody was to ask you, Hey Larry, what's the, what's the, best piece of advice that you can give a young up and coming journalist or somebody that's thinking about getting in the business? What's the best piece of advice that you can give them? Uh, I think the, you know, the thing I, I tell people who want to specifically get into, to writing the sports writing aspect of it is just read everything you can and, you know, find the people that you really like and study their work and what, make what gives him or her the the voice that uh makes it stand out to you and you know even try try copying that you'll you'll find your own voice eventually but there's nothing wrong like when i was young jim murray of the la times was the guy that that spoke to me uh you know a legendary columnist and uh, you know i just read his stuff voraciously and i think that helped me sort of shape in my mind what a good story was and you know i don't have experience on the broadcast side of it but i imagine it's the same thing where you know watch watch the people that you like and what it is about them that makes them good and use that as the uh you know the starting point for for launching your own career just and try and uh take every opportunity write for your school paper or work for your school uh, radio station um, or freelance for a website or try and get an internship somewhere or, you know, just get your name out there. Uh, You know, that really does help, you know, people, uh, there's been people that have sent me stories and they're good and I help them, you know, Uh, I'm happy to help them. A lot, most people are happy to help you. So try and build relationships with people who are in the business and uh, that will, pay you dividends um, down the road for sure. Larry Stone, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being my guest this week on the podcast. Uh, it was a wonderful discussion. Loved that. Loved having you on. Uh, before you go, go ahead and plug your social media, plug Twitter mm-hmm. where you can find your column, go ahead and plug the book again, all the free promotion you can give it. Go ahead. <laughs> all right. Well, Stone Larry is my Twitter handle. Uh, you can, uh, Read me at the seattletimes.com. I write a three or four time a week column in the Seattle Times. Uh, and the book is called Edgar, an Autobiography by Triumph. And it's 
uh, I think you, uh, you know, I'm getting great feedback on the book. Um, the, the forward is by Ken Griffey Jr. And uh, I mean, Edgar just went to the Hall of Fame last week. So it's a great opportunity to find out what led to this Hall of Fame career. And he, he really did have a fascinating life, which, uh, you know, I didn't get into his, his upbringing and how he uh, hit on the roof of his family home because he wanted to stay with his grandparents when his his parents who had divorced or separated, wow. they got back together and they wanted Edgar to move in with him in New York. And he hid on the roof so that he didn't have to go. And he ended up staying <laughs> with his grandparents in this, you know, this small village in uh, Puerto Rico, Dorado, or the Maguayo neighborhood. And just so many, there's so many points along the way that Edgar's career could have been short circuited, but he, he persevered and stuck with it. And, uh, uh, I think the book is a good flavor of that. And, uh, you know, what made him such a great player. Awesome. 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 Thank you so much for joining me this week on the podcast again. And we'll definitely have to do this again. It was a great discussion. And I have so many more questions to ask you about Seattle sports, the Mariners, uh, everybody, every, everything. You, you just pick your mind some more. So we'll <laughs> definitely have you on, or we'll definitely invite you on on the show again. All right, Manny. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Life is full of things to manage your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Thank you so much to Larry Stone for uh, being my guest this week on the podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. He's a guy that brings over 40 years of experience. And, and you could tell he's, he's seen a lot. Uh, he really, really conveyed that in, in the interview today. And I'm, and I'm just really happy that we, could, we were able to set this up. But he had a busy schedule and he took time out of his, of his schedule to, to, to give us an hour. So I, I really, really appreciate it. And I hope you guys enjoy this 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 uh this conversation i have with him um really really awesome um but yeah make sure you follow him on twitter at stone larry at stone larry and then also make sure you go to seattletimes.com and make sure you follow his uh follow his column man he's a really really interesting guy um i just recently became a fan of his uh work um started following him because a friend of mine recommended or a co-worker of mine actually recommended him to me uh he's a huge mariner fan who um reads all of his articles reads all of his columns you know each week and uh, suggested to me that I should probably have Larry on to talk about Edgar. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was awesome. Um, I'm glad we did. Uh, we learned so much and it was still so much. And I felt like I could talk to him for another hour or two just on, I didn't even get a chance to talk to him about so many other things that I wanted to talk to, talk to him about. So we'll definitely have to get Larry back on the show, but yeah, make sure you follow him on Twitter at stone Larry at stone Larry. As always, make sure you follow us on Twitter at AGS pod on Instagram, AGS podcast on Facebook, a, uh, any given Sunday, make sure you become a member of AGS nation. Um, make sure you follow me on Twitter at the Emmanuel Brown and on Instagram at Emmanuel Brown and of course Snapchat Manny Bro 15. As always, thank you guys for listening and subscribing to the podcast. Without you guys, there is no podcast. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting the show. And uh, you know, please keep supporting the show. I truly appreciate all the listeners and all the feedback and all the wonderful support that we get each and every week. Um, it's, it's truly mind blowing. It really is. And make sure you check out all the other podcasts on the Dead End Sports and you know, Dead End Sports as the Mike's Salon and etc. etc. Make sure you check out all the other podcasts on the Dead End Podcast Network as well. Um, I'm going to get up out of here. I'm rambling now, but I'm going to get up out of here and enjoy this nice, beautiful weather that we have going on outside. It's close to 80 degrees. It's a beautiful Sunday afternoon. I'm going to go spend some time with the family and uh, enjoy the day, man. So I hope you guys have a happy, safe, blessed rest of your week. And uh, check us out next week with another episode of the podcast. Peace. Peace.